WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to City Talk. The world of the 60s had many firsts. The first astronaut, the first expansion of the major leagues in baseball, and the reason why we are doing this interview, because WBZ-TV, which was the first television station in Massachusetts, had the first anchor woman, And she is joining us on this very special edition of City Talk. She is Joanne Desmond. And Joanne, it's, it's a privilege to talk to a lady who was a first, and that's you. Well, thank you. Yes, I was. And I was privileged to be so. And I love right. WBZ because of that. <laughs> did you did you grow up in Massachusetts? No, I didn't. Uh, I think in another life I did because it always felt like home to me. <laughs> and and so much of the reporting that I did in Boston was really showed what an important place Boston is still, even though it was so important at the beginning of our country. But still, a lot of big things were happening there in Boston. It was a very exciting career for me in the sixties. What, where did you grow up and what made you decide you wanted to tackle the medium for for bringing in a paycheck? <laughs> well, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago and went to Northwestern University, which was very big on uh, broadcast. Well, actually, there was no class in broadcasting at that time, but I was interested in um, in theater arts and so forth. And so my degree was actually a BS in science because I also decided I might go to medical school. So I had a lot of science training and that came in very handy when I was a reporter in Boston. OK, so how did you get from Chicago? What 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 led you to Boston? How did you get the job at BZ? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I thought in my mind, what's a place in the United States that has some of the most interesting people in it and the most interesting universities? Where can I find things that are exciting and fascinating and new? And Boston was it, hands down, the finest universities, some of the best hospitals, some of the best science was being done there at MIT and at Harvard. And to me, it was just a very thrilling city. And besides, I love the beautiful architecture. So for me, it just was home. And I kept thinking, I should have grown up here. This should have been home. <laughs> it, it, it was home for many years. And when I was back recently to attend the uh, premiere of the movie Boston Strangler, I walked up and down the streets and saw where I used to live. And it was such a, such a treat to just feel at home again. All right. But, but what happened? How did you, con did you contact BZ? Um, how did all that come about? You know, that's another good question, because I didn't just go straight out to WBZ. I didn't know about it. But what I did was I said, just get in the door. You know, you like media, just get in the door somewhere. So I took a job at uh, uh, WGBH teaching phonics to first graders. <laughs> and luckily, just to, to cover my bets when I was at Northwestern, I got a teacher certificate by staying one summer. So I was able to take that job teaching phonics to children. And then I used that 
when I called the TV stations and I could say to the secretaries, would you turn on this station right now and have let your boss see how I look on camera and, and how I, you know, how I come across generally. They did that. And that's how WBZ called me back and said, yes, we're interested. We happen to be looking for someone, a woman right now. So perfect. All right. So they hired you. What was it like and how were you, how were you treated by the male population it makes a much better story to say that everyone was mean to me that they kind of demeaned me as a woman it would make a much better story or that they chased me around the desk that'd be a really yeah. spicy story <laughs> but none of that happened i had the privilege of working with some of the finest men you can imagine jack chase and and yes. uh, uh um Arch McDonald, these were such gentlemen, intelligent and really as nice in person as they were on camera, as you might think they were. Uh, they, they helped me tremendously because there was no training in those days. You didn't go to school and learn how to be a TV uh, reporter. It, it just wasn't there. And so I had to learn from them. They would teach me, here's how you edit film. Here's how you uh, interview someone. Here's what you... Don't don't leave this out. Always find out what the title of that book means, you know, that sort of thing. And they would do it in such a nice way that it never made me feel that I was stupid or or less than. And I always wanted just to be a member of the team. That was my my goal. The news. Team. Now, news was a lot different then than oh, it is boy. now. You didn't, oh, was it? you didn't have newscasts that started at four in the afternoon. That's right. We didn't. We certainly didn't. And in fact, uh, we had to go out and we had to do our own story completely. Nowadays, you have a producer who goes along with you who's written it. Uh, we had to write it on our knees, read the press release in the car going there. And then when you got there, you sort of wrote it on your knees just or <laughs> wherever you could find a place to write. And, and that was basically how we did. We had no teleprompters either. If you didn't look back down at your script in the right at the right time and find the right place you were out of luck because you're on camera it's live and there were no teleprompters you had to look up and then look down again and then look up and look down. <laughs> it was very tricky very right, hard let's, to do. let's talk about some of the stories that that you had a chance to cover um i remember 1961 as the first year the astronauts went into space. And the first one was Alan Shepard. And you told me you got a chance to interview him. I did. And what a thrill that was. He was just uh, so articulate. And very often, uh, when you get somebody in the sciences, and of course, all the astronauts were also scientists, uh, they, they can be monotone. They can be somewhat uh, dull in their explanations. But I have the advantage of being the only female in the room with about a thousand men when the astronauts burst into the room and sat down in front of us and started taking questions from the, from the uh, press. And since I was the only female in there, I had a chance to listen to all of them respond to questions. And that allowed me to see who would be best for my TV interview, which was always done after the uh, the print journalists were finished with their questions. And I thought Alan, that, um, that uh, Shepard had the best voice and the best way of explaining things. 
And he was my, it took a while to figure out who I would choose, but I thought he would be the best. And he was, he was funny. He was interesting. He was um, clear in his explanations. And I, I just couldn't imagine a better opportunity. And you know, he said something that I, I just loved. I found it so funny. He said, when you're out in space, you look around and you say, you know, my safety here is based on whoever made the lowest bid on a government contract. Hmm. <laughs> and somehow he went on and he did it. And he was the first uh, American in space, the first one to manage um, a, a, a spacecraft in outer space. He, he really did quite a lot. And um, then developed an ear problem, which they fixed, and he was able to go on and go to the moon. So it, he had a very interesting career, and I'm thrilled to have met him. And he's a he's a uh, from Derry, New Hampshire, so he's a New Englander. Now I I remember other names like uh, John Glenn, right? Virgil Virgil Grissom, right? Um, uh, uh, White. Yeah. Uh, I can't I can't remember any others who were some of the first ones, but I remember those names. Were they all there? Uh, they were all in the room. Uh, again, when they burst through the door, it was a big hotel that held the, the news conference. And when they burst through the door, I'll tell you, everybody stood up. We stood just out of respect for these guys. And you had the feeling that they had almost been to what for hundreds of years has been considered heaven. You know, they, there was just something so special about them. It, it, they were the very first astronauts, the Mercury guys, seven of them. And that's why the first spaceship was called, um, had all the spaceships for their missions had the number seven in them. It, it, uh, Alan had named his Freedom Seven, and others named theirs some other um, adjective that was positive, but always seven for the seven astronauts in that first group. All right. Now, what newscast did you do? And did you you weren't alone, right? I mean, you had. No, I, right. I had wonderful people. people. I did. I had terrific people with me. And I began doing news at noon or news at nine, which had been done very capably by a woman named Betty Adams. She did a terrific job. And there were a few other women in the United States doing morning TV shows, maybe five of us in all. But Betty uh, left, and what I learned, the reason I learned that Betty was leaving and that job was going to be available, to hark back to your earlier question, is that when I was doing this class on um, phonics for children over at WGBH, I had just gotten in the door. In other words, I was in television. I could keep my ears. Sure enough, at one of the meetings in at, after the show was done we shut down we'd all sit around and we'd get a food from julia childs who was doing her show in the in next door in the studio next door and they bring over whatever food was left over we would all sit around talk and eat it and one of the guys that night said you know i hear betty adams over at wbz is going to be married and will be leaving wow that's all i needed to hear and then i was able to go and and uh, request an interview with the general manager because I knew the job was open. That's the kind of thing you would never see in a newspaper. You never see that in a want ads in a newspaper. And so I think the, the 
the technique of just get in the door, get into the field that you're interested in, start somewhere, even if it's at the bottom or in a slightly different area, but just get in and then keep your ears open for other opportunities. That really worked for me. I mean, I can recommend it 100%. Everyone will say that the world of the 60s or the time of the 60s was Camelot. Uh, yes, we had yes. a we had a young Catholic president right. who was from Massachusetts. Did you exactly. get to meet or talk to JFK? Oh, I did. I talked to all the Kennedys, as you can imagine, every one of them, and uh, they were they were always good good copy, <laughs> very good copy. And actually, one of the saddest occasions was when the uh, baby was born, the the last baby, and we had dashed off to. Uh, Cape Cod because the baby had just been born a little early. We got there and beautiful day. It was like a party. You could hear all languages there. People from all over the world, reporters from all over the world were there, hundreds of thousands of them. But then as the day wore on, it got dark. The clouds gathered and I could see Pierre Salinger walking across this huge lot to the microphones very slowly. And the day, everything just got dark and, and threatening, the big, big clouds coming in. And P uh, Pierre Salinger said, the Kennedy baby is being taken to Mass General. He seems to have hyaline disease, which is really terrible. And of course, the baby did not make it through the night. And But the whole day, the weather of the whole day became ugly and cloudy and dark. And we, we had jackets on. Everyone was shivering. We were all so sad. And I came back and finished up the story. And that was the, uh, the, the baby that was born prematurely and had hyaline disease and just couldn't make it. But, you know, in, in writing my, my adventures, I'm writing a book about my adventures as a newscaster. I'm trying to find what happened at that moment that I was a reporter on that story. How does that affect us today? What's the carryover? Sure enough, in my own life, I had a, a grandchild who was born 23 weeks early, a preemie. We were told that at two, she'd probably have brain damage. She's 14 now, and she's on the honor roll, straight, straight out of the honor roll. Nothing wrong with her. Everything's fine. She has one tiny lung that just got very small and black, and you can see that on x-ray, but she grew another lung. <laughs> and <laughs> there's, and, but she had the most wonderful care because with the Kennedy baby's problem, of prematurity, which they couldn't even solve at Mass General in those days. It has come so far. There was suddenly this huge outpouring of interest in premature birth. And that really did a lot to, I know, did a lot to save my granddaughter, who was um, just the joy of my life <laughs> today. Well, she has so many things that were not done then. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was born two months premature myself. Really? And that's yep. how you turned out so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> because well, the people who survived. Yeah, I was born two months premature. Two months. I weighed two pounds and four ounces. Wish I weighed what? that now sometimes, but um, that's that's another story for another time. Now, Isn't it? Oh, gosh, that's a lot. And, and in, those, in those days, they didn't have what they have in today's world, you know. No, they people. did not. Nope. Uh, well, now, everyone says that the Kennedy assassination made television come of age. 
what about really? that for you? What about that for you? Well, I'm sure that everybody can remember where they were the day that Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it's just one of those things that was so permanently in our minds, so <laughs> completely saved in our memory. Uh, where I'll tell you what my little story is, and it's to me, it's a very important story, and it's definitely in my list of of adventures. My job on that particular day was to do what they called riding the waves, riding the uh, waves. And that meant you had the AP Associated Press uh, machine was up in front, an irritating little machine that kept rat-tat-tatting all day. And the news would spill out the front, all printed out on this thing, it was like a big printer. And then we had UPS, United Press Services. And these two machines is where we got a lot of our news. In fact, one's job was to go up and rip off the news as it came through and watch for anything that might be a, a bulletin. But bulletins were always announced in the loud, busy newsroom by a ding, 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 ding. So when you'd hear that, and that I was riding the machines on that particular afternoon, and I had to wait for the dings. Suddenly, it began dinging like crazy. Ding, ding, ding. It wouldn't stop. So I ran over and I said, oh boy, on my watch, this should happen. Who do I call? Clearly, it's, there's a mistake. There's something broken in the machine. I better call. Who do I call? And then as I looked again, it said in capital letters, get off. Everybody off. What? I couldn't understand this. And again, ding, 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 ding. And then a pause. Nothing's coming out. And then again, everybody off get off. These machines received news feeds from all over the world. So they were telling everybody all over the world, no more news feeds. Leave us alone. We got something coming up here that's too big to have anything else get in its way. Sure enough, then came the words slowly, President Kennedy shot and on and on and on the rest of the story. And I immediately whirled around and said, hey, guys, get over here. And of course, everybody ran over right away to see what this was about. And our, we, we were all stunned, absolutely stunned. But there wasn't time to allow yourself to be stunned because our, our wonderful news director, Ed Fui, came in and said, okay, Joanne, you go here and you go with Ed Dukes, the, the photographer, and, and Jack, you go here and somebody else, you go there. He, he gave us assignments right away. We dashed out to our cars. And mine was to go see Tip O'Neill. I can't imagine. Well, Tip couldn't even talk. Usually, he when he'd see me, he'd say, hello, darling, in that wonderful voice of his, <laughs> hello, darling. And on this day, he didn't say that. He just, he was crying. He was weeping. And his face was all swollen from tears. And frankly, mine was too. But I could always sit with my back to the camera as I interviewed somebody. And so I interviewed him for this this particular day. And it was such a sad, sad interview. Then they told us, do man on the street, go do the man on the street interviews. So I thought, what could I do that'd be different, that'd be unique? And as I came out after finishing with Tip, I noticed a car stopped at a light. And I thought, oh, that's what I need, a car. That would be interesting, get a whole bunch of people in a car. I've never seen that done as a man on the street. So I ran over and I took my microphone, my handheld mic, and I thrusted in the car and they were all crying in there. Some were gasping with the tears as the news came over their radio. 
And this is the story I got. And then I pulled it out just as the light changed, pulled my mic out, and the car drove away. They used that piece every newscast for the next three or four days. It was so mm. good. I mean, it sort of brought closure to the whole thing. You're driving off into the future with this sorrow that you have to bear. And that was it. That was it. I, I you know, everybody has their memories. I remember Walter Cronkite, of course. Um, yes. And those were also the days of the Huntley-Brinkley report, which exactly. BZ, BZ carried because they were an NBC affiliate. That's right. Exactly. But you've got a great memory. You're absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> and, and we came on right after Huntley-Brinkley. So we were in big shoes. But I, I remember going on the air that night. The Kennedy was shot. And we were out to the very last minute and just dashed back to the studio, not having time to comb my hair or put on makeup or even lipstick, nothing. I just went on the air and so did everybody else. We just stumbled through the rest of the day because it was so hard to do. But you're right. It was Huntley Brinkley before us. And they, of course, had something to say about the, the shooting, a lot to say. But we were in Boston, which is his hometown. It was our hometown boy. So our, our new show had tremendous importance that night, even though I didn't look my best. <laughs> Do you remember where you were when the, now the Oswald shooting was covered live by NBC? I remember, I remember watching it. We were having dinner mm. at my aunt's house and it, really? and it happened live. The others were covering what was going on at the Capitol, but NBC right. was covering it live. And I even can remember the announcer. His name was Tom Pettit of NBC. Yes, I remember was, him, of course. Was was covering that live. Where were you that day? I think I was still in college. I, I wasn't working. <laughs> I know I wasn't. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I It wasn't didn't happen on my time at WBC. Uh, my, OK, must have been just, another. Just just curious um, now. Other people that you met, I know you were talking with Morgan White the other day about yeah. Martin Luther King. Oh, wonderful man. Oh, I kept thinking, I'm going to tell my grandchildren about this someday. And of course I have, but I didn't have grandchildren, didn't even have a husband in those days, but I was so thrilled to meet him. And, and what to me was incredible was that I learned from him through my question. I couldn't figure out a good question to ask him. I thought, gee, what do I ask this guy? But I asked every question imaginable all over the United States, all over the world, in fact. And what can I ask this unique, this different? And then I thought, wait a minute, you know, he kind of looks like a professor dressed in his dark suit. And he was listening to people. He wasn't a big celebrity. When I walked in the room, he wasn't this big gesticulating, surrounded by hundreds, uh, the way so many people who were the, the um, person of the day that I was there to interview. Not at all. When I walked into the room, he was listening quietly to someone talk to him. And he looked like a professor. And I thought, that's right. He did his, his, um, he got his PhD here at Boston University. I'll ask him a question about that. So, and then I thought, you know, Henry David Thoreau, I, I know that's a kind of a fancy name, but in Boston, you have Thoreau Parks, you have Thoreau Walks. I mean, it's, it's kind of a household name. It's not too highfalutin to ask him 
if he was in, if he was influenced by reading Henry David Thoreau while he was a graduate student here. Wow. I asked him that question and he took off and he wouldn't stop. He just said that had been one of the most profound influences for him in terms of civil disobedience. Certainly it didn't start his whole movement. That that was within him and, and depended on many other connections he had with Ebenezer um, Church in um, in the South and all of the other friends and th everything really combined to make him feel it was important to step out and be the head of this program. But what he did discover in Boston was civil disobedience. And he found that it was way back in 1800s that this was all being talked about through his work as a PhD student. And he said, this is where I thought civil disobedience. If a law isn't good, if it's a bad law, it does not need to be obeyed. I agree with Henry David Thoreau. And so civil disobedience began in Boston. All right. Your name has come to light recently because of a new movie right. that has been, re been released about the Boston Strangler. And you're in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they show, I, I have not seen the movie as yet. But I know that they show actual footage of of you doing some reporting. Right. Did they? Did you have to uh, okay anything that was used in the movie, or how did how did all this happen? Oh yeah, boy, is that a good question? That was a big legal thing. You have to do what's called a licensing contract, and we had to sit down and have a Zoom meeting with the. The uh, company, it was a Disney company that uh, was uh, that had to do with getting the whole movie together. And they um, and my son-in-law happens to be a, um, a producer of of uh, commercials. And so he knew a lot about licensing because he's licensing almost every day things to be used in commercials. So he helped. He was there for me and uh, they had their people. And it was it was a very legal thing. And they paid me uh, even to use this. And what is amusing, at least I think it is, that little piece of film, when I was 23 years old, I stole, I nicked it. <laughs> I took it out of the archives my, last, my next to last day on, on the job. I was going to be married. And I took it. And, I, and then I felt bad about it. I went to my boss the next day and said, oh, Ed, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a thief and I have to confess I took this little piece of film but you know it, it 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 was one of the most creative things I ever did and Ed, Ed said ah we just been sold to CVS take it take whatever you want go back and get four or five more <laughs> and I did I did and gave them back to WBZ when I was out there in um, March and they were thrilled to have them because everything was burned when they sold to CBS that was there even my wonderful interview with Martin Luther King. But here's the funny thing. That little role I took with me, I, I was getting married the next day, and I took that roll of film in the bottom of a, of a, of a uh, shoebox, little cardboard shoebox. And, and then being in the military, my husband was a West Pointer, being in the military, we traveled, oh, I think, 20 moves at least back and forth to Europe. And you know how much stuff gets lost in moving. It's crazy. And especially something just in the bottom of a shoebox. But that little piece of film, there it was, 
on the last move, I said, oh my gosh, this is still here. But then I looked at the sound at the bottom, the mag magnetic sound at the bottom, oh, it was all eaten out. I said, ah, the pictures are good, but the sound's gone. All right. my daughter, but my daughter, who is a producer and writer in Hollywood, said, mom, let me take it. Let, let me see what I can do with this. She found probably the only person in the world who could restore mag, mag sound, magnetic sound. They did. And then when WBZ had its 75th anniversary, they ran a, 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 some sort of a special uh, show, show on, or a special program on their website for the, what they've done over the years. And they said, Shelby Scott was our first anchor woman. And my daughter said, oh, no, oh, no, my mom was. <laughs> and I can prove it. So she sent them the film. They were thrilled oh. to see it. And they put it up on their website. And they changed the, the bottom of it. I had, I had done that story mostly to give women some ideas of what they could do to, to um, protect themselves from the strangler. Here's, here's an I, example of what I did. I said, get a pair of boots at a secondhand store, men's boots, put mud all over them and put them out in front of your door. They won't, uh, the strangler only wants single women. If it looks like no. men's boots out there and they're muddy, so they were just there using them. Oh, okay. So I had a, 10 ideas like that that we recorded, but BC took it off and put strangler stuff on the bottom, uh, on the rest of that little, uh, I did the intro and then they put the uh, strangler information on it. Hollywood How saw that. Hollywood saw that on their website and said, oh gosh, this would be perfect for the strangler movie we just were just putting together. So they picked it up, and that's how it got into the movie. All After right, 20 <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, and I should say that they said, oh, and we'll pay you for it. Really? Oh, we'll yeah. $12. We'll pay you twelve fifty. And I thought, okay, $12.50. That's nice. Uh-uh. <laughs> it was more like $1,250. I was going to say, I, I hope it was a little more than $12. All right. <laughs> I but didn't care. But let's talk about your involvement with, I mean, everybody's going to wonder your involvement with The Strangler. What happened? You know, anybody who sees that, and by the way, this movie is on Hulu. Anyone who watches the movie will see me doing this report. But I knew in the back of my mind that I was getting fan letters from someone who signed them at the bottom, Albert DeSalvo, and gave me a, a, um, his home address. And he said in the letter, please send me your measurements, your, I want, you know, your bust, your waist, your hips, and how tall you are. And then drew a line where I was supposed to write in the appropriate numbers. And I opened this letter along with other fan mail. And I whirled around to my, the uh, news director whose desk was right behind mine. And I said, is this the kind of thing I can expect to get if I'm working here? And he said, yep, he was from New Hampshire, <laughs> yep. And I said, well, this is terrible. What do I do with this filthy thing? And he said, circular file. What? Circular file, and he pointed under my desk. Wastebasket. That's the circular file in a newsroom, a wastebasket. Mm -hmm. So I threw it out, foolish, and I, sh I wish I had it because he had typed, or he had he had made it look like typing. He had write, written very small, square, uh, close letters, not at all the way his handwriting shows up. 
look at it in books, and they often have it in books uh, about Strangler. Totally different. And these funny little straight lines where I was supposed to put in the information. And he sent me three of these letters to my horror, three. He'd wait two weeks to see if I responded, and when I didn't, he'd send me another one. Just exactly alike, each one. And at this point, we didn't connect him with the Boston Strangler. It wasn't until later I realized that those letters I had gotten were from probably the Boston's, the man is the Boston Strangler. But at that time, I didn't know. I just thought he was a, a kook who wanted my measurements. And that's what my boss thought, too. So Now, <laughs> he actually came to the station. Is that correct? I can't say that it was him. I can't say for sure. But somebody came and made an appointment with Norm MacDonald, the uh, weatherman, said, gee, you know, I'd really like to know more about the weather. Could you teach me about some of the weather? Oh, Norm says, sure, come on, and, and come up to my office. I suppose he thought that the weather board was right near the news desk and he could see me, but whoever this guy is, I don't know, and I can't prove that it was the Boston Strangler. But somebody, a guy came, and Norm was showing him everything, and as he turned around, to, oh, and the guy kept asking, while he was up there with Norm, is Joanne Desmond downstairs? And Norm said, oh, yeah, it's 5.30. They're getting ready to do the news. You don't want to go in that area at all. They're all working like crazy and uh, trying to, you know, meet the deadline. And he asked that question twice. Well, does she usually stay in the, in the studio or when does she go in? You know, and Norm gave her some offhand response and turned back to his weather chart. And then he turned around again to say, you see, and the guy was gone. Guy was gone. And Norm said, wow. And he cleverly picked up the phone and called down to the newsroom and said, get Joanne out of there. And they put me back in, the, in a, um, a windowless room that we used for uh, tapes for editing. And then two guys, two fellows there on the news team came in the front, young guys came in the front and barred the door. And then pretty soon about 20 policemen came and they searched everywhere behind everything. And I kept thinking, it's only two minutes to the news. Come on, come on, let me out of here. And then they kept two policemen off camera because we, could, we didn't know exactly who he was, but the description was a short, wiry guy, dark hair and a big nose. And that frightened me and that frightened them that was enough for everybody to be nervous because of course he knew where I worked I was on television all the time when we were in Italy I picked up a, a, a news magazine when I was later married this is maybe 1970 picked up a news magazine or a magazine in a, on a train I was about to feed my baby and I thought I'd have something interesting to read and it was about the Boston Strangler and in that Magazine that said he used to like to go home and watch the girl report on his murders. That that gave him some sort of a high. <laughs> and, I, and I said to my husband, take the baby, take the baby. I, I just started to shake, I uncontrollably shake. I said, take the baby. And he did. He didn't know what was going on. I just started to shake. And he said, oh, you know, you're on the other side of the world. What are you worried about? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I just got this is horrible. <laughs> and but, you know, you carry that that terror with you that uh who knows it's a uh, it's something you just can't get over very quickly and i didn't now you were you were at bz for five years yes. during that time were you when you would go out on the street 
were you afraid that you might run into the Boston Strangler? It must have been terrifying because there were 13 women that were yeah. strangled to death. Right. But, you know, I knew how he worked and he didn't go out and get people on the street. That's not how he worked. He got into homes. He talked his way into the home. He was a very clever guy. He talked his way into the home and he didn't plan them ahead of time. He, he just sort of drove around and when he's, he'd try different buzzers, you know, in the buildings. And if someone, if it was one name and the buzzer worked, he'd go inside. And if he didn't think that was the right person, he wouldn't go in. But when he could get in, he worked fast and he worked uh, his horrible, his horrible murders. And then he always left his, whoever the poor victim was, in a most unattractive position on the floor. So she would be the first thing you'd see as the police entered. And then he'd get out and no fingerprints. He always wore gloves. But that's how he worked. I knew he wouldn't ever bother me out in public. He wasn't that way. He, he wanted to go inside the house and get in and do it, take care of things there. Horrible. Now, obvious, obvious question. I'm sure you've mm -hmm. been asked this many times. Do you <laughs> believe that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler? I tend to, yes. However, I think there may have been one or two copycat murders. There were other people who were very questionable. And I read the same book you read by Gerald Frank. And it, it, there sure were some people that are highly questionable and stuff, but I think he may have done the bulk of them. And he certainly did the last one. That's been pretty well proven. But, but here's the irony of the whole Strangler story. To me, the huge irony is in a 50 mile radius at the same time in history, within the same couple of years, the Boston Strangler, who left huge amounts of DNA everywhere he did a murder, and DNA over at Harvard was just being developed by Jim Watson, Dr. James Watson. And with if it had been just a little further, just another year or two, it could have solved the Strangler murders immediately. Immediately. They could have gotten the guy who did it and had it done. But because it was just a, a year or two off, and I did both stories. I begged to do both stories. I did DNA uh, research, and when he got the Nobel Prize for that, I interviewed him. And I kept thinking, what a shame we didn't have this just a few years more. Now, of course, all crimes that have anything that look like rape are quickly solved by D using DNA. All right. You were at BZ for five years. Obvious yep. question. Why did mm -hmm. you leave? <laughs> well, uh, Cupid... I, I met someone on the job, and I thought he was kind of silly. It was a um, a job that I didn't want to go to. I really, and I begged <laughs> let somebody else do it, but they said, no, it's, you're up. It's your turn. This is a, a, a staged um, disaster that was a rehearsal for an, a possible real disaster. And so you had guys in moulages, which are um, rubber looking wounds they're, they're just rubber you take them right off it's like masks halloween masks and they were rolling around on the ground you know just uh, it was the whole thing was was uh, a big disaster drill 
and I didn't want to do it. But here in a tent was a young man who came out and said, coffee, anybody? And I said, oh, I'd love a cup of coffee. Oh, well, come into my tent. Sure. <laughs> and that, was, <laughs> that was a big mistake. Never go into the tent. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I did go in and have a cup of coffee. And that's when he took off his helmet. And it told me his name and asked me what I was doing and, you know, was interested. And he said, well, you know, maybe you'd like to have dinner sometime. I, well, maybe, I don't know. And so he did get my number and called me at the station about a week later. And we went out to dinner and then another dinner. And that was, began dating. And that was pretty much it. And this, and he was from the um, military or from, yeah, the military. Fort Devons is right close by. And all the Fort Devons people were there to be the ones who would, respond to a disaster. So that's why he was there. So it was both the victims and the first responders. And um, that was it. And we were married and his first assignment was in Turkey, Ankara, Turkey. So I had to leave BZ. There was no way I could, I could stay. And uh, it was, I felt it was uh, time to have a family, raise a family, but I did go on in television the rest of my life and have done that. That's what I was going to ask you. If you can, give us a rough time capsule as to uh, (laughs) what you have done that the leading leading up to now. Well, what happened? Yeah, what I did when I left uh, BZ and um, got to Turkey was um, well. First of all, I should say that they I, I had a letter from them saying that I I was going to Turkey and that I would be probably sitting in on a lot of conferences on military issues and that I might want to contact the TV stations back in the States if I found out anything that was really interesting and wasn't top secret. And sure enough, we did go to a lot of briefings all over South America. And and there were times when I would get on the phone and say, you know, that, that uprising they had, that was instigated, and here's why, and that sort of thing. So I had that relationship, but but probably more to the point, when I got to Korea, which was our first assignment, I talked to the, um, the man who was the head of, uh, a uh, colonel, head of the um, TV and radio division and, and communications into doing a TV series on Koreans and the Korean culture because a lot of the GIs were getting into trouble over there. They, you know, they were just, they were young kids and my heart went out to them. There wasn't a lot to do, but I thought, gee, and oh, and they said the USO buses go out empty every week. No one's on them. No one wants to go. The kid, the guys are down drinking, you know, picking up girls and all that sort of thing. So I said, well, no, let me do a series on the Korean culture, which I did 12 programs and it won several awards. I'm, I'm happy to say. Then when we moved back to the States, um, I talked them into doing a program up at my medical center when I take my kids up to have their medical checkups. Um, I I let them know I'd been in television and um, that I would like to do a series at some point. Well, sure enough, they called me and said, we are thinking about doing something called Doctor's House Call. It will be a 20 program series on a different disease of the week. I did that. I was the writer and the host of that program. It got the Cable Ace Award, and uh, it was great fun and stimulating. And, of course, having been pre-med in college, uh, it was right up my alley. And, so, and now I'm just having the fun of, of, of uh, going back over the wonderful years I've had of 
of using media and having seen it change, as you said at the beginning, boy, has it changed. <laughs> now, I got to oh. ask you, do you, you watch the news every night? Are you a news junkie? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I, I just find that it's uh, almost an addiction or maybe I have I don't have an off button. <laughs> maybe no. when you're or you don't get those off buttons. <laughs> you are, are, you in, are you in Los Angeles now? Or are well, you I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in Southern California, generally, and I'm oh. sort of between homes at this point. You get tired of the phrase breaking news? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I just know that this, the current now is not what we use then. But things are so different. Do you? Does that bother you? Definitely. Really? Tell me how. Well, you know, you'll you'll hear a story at the beginning of the newscast, and mm -hmm. on the next a half hour later, it's still breaking news, <laughs> uh, which I drives me. And, and another thing that drives me crazy is when they when they will tease a story, they'll uh -huh. come they'll, like the first fifteen minutes of the newscast is all solid news, but then yep. when they take a commercial break, they take ten seconds to tell a story. And then it's time for another commercial. Yeah, um, yeah. I that drives me. I don't think in the days of Walter Cronkite that they, <laughs> that they operated that way. No, um, I agree. I agree. And isn't it interesting that Walter Cronkite was supposed to be the most trusted man in America? Absolutely, I trusted you, him. I, right, me too. But would you trust? You know, you see what? How I wouldn't want to be a, a news person today because. They're vilified by, by so many people who trust the press. The press has gotten a, a terrible name, and I think it's unfair, and it makes me angry. But a lot of people who have the opposite view um, or another view just don't like certain reporters. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the technology, to me, the technology is amazing. I mean... Yeah. I remember when we were talking about the Kennedy assassination, when they, you know, a telephone booth would become a radio studio because that's how things were back then. Um, exactly. I remember we had Robert McNeil mm -hmm. uh, of the McNeil Lair Report in the studio one night, and we uh -huh. we and we played a tape for him being on the air broadcasting to NBC at the time of the assassination. And his comment was, gee, I sounded like a kid back then. <laughs> um, but now technology is, is so wonderful. I mean, you can listen to a report in Ireland or England or Ukraine, and it right. sounds like it's local. That part of the news I love. Yes, right, right. It's excellent. I think that's, I think that's great. I'm not, I'm not crazy about some of the things that happen in this country right now no, um that's right polit politically or with all the school shootings or somebody yeah. who gets in a wrong car and gets shot I, isn't I just, that incredible I, incredible I, I just have trouble believing i mean yeah. I, I have to believe it but yeah we never had that growing up you never saw that happen i don't think so i think you're right i don't think so now one thing that's kind of different now as it, compared to it, my day, we could not even raise an eyebrow if it was going to show how we felt about a news story 
We couldn't do any body language. We couldn't change our voice slightly in, in any way that might imply that we didn't like what we were talking about or reporting on or that we had a thought, a feeling about it or a belief about it. We couldn't do that. We had to be absolutely messengers of facts and nothing else. Well, in today's world, it's quite different. If you tell me what state, what TV stations, if anyone tells me what TV stations they watch, I probably can guess what their politics is, what their political view is. Yeah, because I got a hunch. Fox, Fox is going to have a lot of trouble lot restoring of trouble. Uh, uh, people's faith in them as a news organization. Yes, and yet there are, I just saw someone analyzing that the other night on PBS, and he said, there are people who will just say, who won't even hear that. They won't even hear what's going on at Fox, because it won't be on Fox Station, that's for sure. And if they are devoted to the message that Fox has, they probably won't hear it. And, you know, that's, uh, in, in, again, in my day, we just couldn't have anything except a an attitude of delivery and no, no message with it, no personal message with it at all. You'd be called upstairs if you, if you raised an eyebrow inappropriately, or if you made, you know, gave any sort of body language and said, isn't this crazy? You would be called upstairs on the carpet and you'd be told, you'd be given a warning and maybe even be fired. That's how careful they they were in those days and our news director would always say to us always do you have both sides of the story yeah both the fairness sides. doctrine right exactly i don't exactly. i don't get that in today's news entirely are you are you pleased with the with the 24 hour seven day a week news coverage or is there too much of it well, that's too much for me right now in, in my busy world. I'm teaching quite a lot. And of course, I'm writing my book of, of adventures as an anchor woman, trying to put all of this in and trying to connect it to what's going on today. Anything that I covered in this in any chapter of my book, I am showing how today it has changed things. For example, with the and that takes a lot of time and a lot of research. So I'm busy as in another media in print journalism now. But for example, with the uh, as we were talking about the astronauts, no, it's un it's incredible how much we have from having astronauts go up in outer space. We have things like the little hand vacuums that we use around the house. We have LASIK eye surgery. We have something like a thousand new things that have emanated from the research used in getting our astronauts into outer space. And in fact, they have a website that you can go on to to see what all of these, what some of these different objects are. So everything I did back in the 60s, early 60s, has some ramification for today. As I mentioned, even with premature babies, that, has, that whole science has changed dramatically because of the death of that baby. And each incident that I talk about in, the, in my my um, adventures list in my book has some some um, payback today or some way that it has changed us. Even the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, by the way, I didn't know had been solved when I was reading my copy in the morning on more, uh, News at, New at Nine, showing the, the big ships going back and forth between Cuba. I think, oh, my God, it's all over. It's all over. It was hard to keep my voice from breaking as I read that news. 
I didn't know it had already been been solved and that this was just a show. This was the last few days of the Cuban Missile Crisis were a show because they didn't want uh, the Turkish, the, the, some of our, um, our, our devices in Turkey uh, would have to, part of the deal was they would have to be demand, dismantled. And this deal was hammered out in the middle of the night, evidently. Bobby Kennedy was involved and, and some other people. But uh, what was hammered out was so delicate that uh, they couldn't let some of our allies actually know what was being dismantled, however temporarily, in order to solve the, the uh, Cuban mistake. Well, but I found I have, out years later <laughs> that it, it had been over for three days when I was reading the news copy. I, I have to tell you what a thrill this has been for me uh, to right. be able to sit down and talk with you. I spent 14 years at, at WBZ and and uh, the people that I that I sometimes grew up with, like a Carl DeSus and a Jack yeah. Chase. Uh, oh. I would I would see Jack every morning because he would get together with Don Kent and yes. they would go up to the cafeteria and have a cup of coffee before they went on the air. <laughs> oh, I, I remember still, that cafeteria up there. Yes. I, oh my gosh. I was still I was still working at the time with a character named Larry Glick. So uh -huh. I got to see Jack and uh he was so nice to me and so was his wife Nadine. Yes. Uh, they were just wonderful people. And really? I'm I'm thrilled that you were able to work there and put your oh your mark in history, as it were, uh, on a radio station like that. And when you get this book finished, I expect a phone call saying, okay, when are we going on the air? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I think you're a fascinating person. And I wish yeah. I'd, I'd allowed more time for you to talk about your memories, because having had a few, just a few minutes with you here and there, I, I see that you have a wealth of, of experience in media, in <laughs> In New England, just a wealth of experience. So it's been a real treat for me to to hear your insights and to see what thoughts you have about the same topic that we both well, find so interesting. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Uh, I still do a radio show like this now, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I do Thank a cable. I do a cable show for the city of Boston as well. Great. So I'm still. I had a. I had a. Uh, gentleman tell me a long time ago he said kenny if radio is really in your blood you'll never get out of it and i was oh. still in high school at the time oh. and i guess he's right wow here i am and i'm still doing it and you're good at it that's the thing <laughs> you're, well you're i appreciate that but having good subjects like you to talk to as they <laughs> say in the business it don't hoit so <laughs> thank you thank you again for your time and your patience and uh, when your book is done, get in touch with me and we'll do this again. I Oh, I'd be thrilled. And thank you. What a compliment. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed every minute of it. So have I. And that will do it for another okay. edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.